Do you have an inquisitive mind? Where do you go for answers? Imagine if the natural world held an answer to every question. Welcome to the Flowerhood Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Frankpitt. I'm on an orchard growing avocados and there's something going on. The more time I spend in nature, the more I learn about myself. Is it possible that until we connect with nature, we never truly flourish in our relationships, community, businesses or health? Oh boy, this is no ordinary gardening podcast. Join me at my kitchen table for wide and varied conversations with old and new friends from around the world. I'll be asking questions on how they connect with nature, what the research shows us, and look for ways we can incorporate these learnings into our lives. Let's get started. Kiara, hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Flowerhood Podcast. Hey, I'm so chuffed you're here. Welcome back to those who have tuned in before and real special welcome if you're a new listener to the podcast. I've had a pretty busy week. I've just come off attending Tony Robbins' Business Mastery event and my orchard, it's changing daily as we head into autumn here in New Zealand. I mean, it's already April 2021. Where is this year gone? It's just going by so fast. It's a lot going on. Do you feel that as well? So anyway, my current status on my avocados that I grow here in New Zealand, well, I've got a few of last season's crops still hanging on the tree. These are the ones that have kind of been missed by the pickers and they're real beauties. They drop naturally now at this time of the year. And when you find them, they're a treasure. They're fully ripe, high oil content. They spent the summer growing and developing their flavors. And they're rich and buttery, as opposed to those kind of unripe avocados. Like the ones which are also growing on the tree at the same time for next season. So if I went and cut into one of those, it would be bland and watery. No taste. If you've never tasted an avocado, or any fruit for that matter, off the vine or the tree at the end of its fruiting season, I really encourage you to do so. Often the produce we buy in supermarkets has been picked just before ripening, and then it's ripened with a gas process in an enclosed environment as it's shipped to all corners of the world. It then sits in the chillers in your supermarkets before being presented to you. So speaking as an orchardist growing avocados in New Zealand that are exported, I promise you we do our absolute best to give you the best possible consumer experience. And here in New Zealand, we always make sure that the fruit hits a certain level of ripeness, that there's a certain oil content and flavour before we're actually allowed to pick and pack for exporting. But there is nothing that beats the joy and taste experience that you have when you, say, pick an apple off the tree or berries from the canes or strawberries from your patch. I mean, let's face it, a red sun-ripened tomato as opposed to a winter hothouse pale version, well, nothing compares. So my Northern Hemisphere friends, it's time to grab yourself some tomato plants, I should think. You must be getting close. Get some seeds, get them underway. 
summer tomatoes grown by yourself. Yum. And look, if you don't have hardly any space, you can always put them out on the balcony. Try planting them directly in growing bags. You can buy these uh, from the shops. They're a mixture of compost and soil, specially formulated for tomatoes. You just slash sort of a hash in the top of, of the bags and then you put in the plant and there's no mess. Great for growing on your balcony. And remember, you make sure that there's no risk of frosts. You pick that sunny spot if you are still prone to cold snaps. But for me here in the Southern Hemisphere, well, my main regret this week is I have a multitude of different fungi growing in the orchard, and I don't know enough about them to know which ones are edible and which aren't. So I get to kind of marvel at these amazing, fascinating spores, these fruit that come from this underground network, but I don't touch them. And at some point, I have promised myself that I will go on a course and I will learn my mushrooms from my toadstools. Speaking of courses, I really wanted to share with you something that has just fired me up this past week. So I had the great fortune, as I mentioned, to go on business mastery course. And I got to listen to Bill Gross, who is one of the speakers. Now, prior to business mastery, I never heard of Bill Gross. So let me give you a bit of background, as you may not know who he is either. So Bill was born in the US and he was the sort of kid who had a real passion for business. So similar to the many stories that you hear about successful entrepreneurs, by the age of 12, he was selling candy bars at the bus stop. And then during the 1970s, as he was growing up, there was the oil crisis in the US, but also across many of the countries that were affected by OPEC, which basically was made up of Venezuela, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Kuwait. Because what they did is they banned the trade of oil to nations that they thought supported Israel. So to give you an example of the effects, the price of oil quadrupled in the US by 1974. And here too, in New Zealand, you know, we're dependent on oil. And the effect that this had on us was things like rationing. We had carless days. We were only allowed to fill up our car with petrol on certain days of the week. And then in places like um, the States, you know, to help the, reduce the consumption of oil, they had things like speed limits, which were imposed uh, 55 miles per hour in the US. So attending junior high school, Bill became, because of the talk of what was happening around in the news, became very interested in alternative energy sources to oil. And he started investigating solar, so solar energy devices. And this is really cool. I mean, this kid is so smart. He designed an engine using solar, and then he sold the plans of it for $4. He had over 10,000 sales. And the money that he generated went towards helping his college education. So by the time he reached college, he was basically in this situation where he started to check out his friends' loudspeakers in their dormitory rooms, and then he started building speakers himself. After school, he started a software company, and that, I think, was as a result of Gosh, it would have been buying one of the really early IBM PCs that came out and working out how to write the software for it. 
So he ended up getting married, having kids. He wrote educational software. And this was inspired by wanting a better learning experience for his five-year-old. The reason I tell you all this, because it kind of gives you an idea of where his head was. You know, he was a person generated by curiosity, wanting a better future, identifying problems, and then working out how to solve them. Around 1995, after having a number of companies himself, he started up Idea Lab. And so this is like an umbrella to multiple startup companies. I think 2020, there were over 150 companies in Idea Lab, 50 of which had all had successful IPOs. In his words, you unlock human potential when you form a startup, when you share the equity with other people. Really like that. And if you want to hear him talk about what he learned from the successes and failures of companies, both with Idea Lab and outside of Idea Lab, I recommend listening to one of his TED Talks, which is called, um, I think it's the single biggest reason why startups succeed. The single biggest reason why startups succeed. So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. In this uh, TED Talk, he talks about how he looked at winners like Airbnb, LinkedIn, YouTube, and then also startups that failed like Pets.com, Friendster. And he identifies five Factors. So it's a really interesting TED Talk, and you might be surprised by what the number one factor is for success. After identifying 100 winning companies and 100 losing companies, and some of these companies were part of Idea Lab as well, because there was mentioned before, you know, like today is 150 companies in Idea Lab, 50 had successful IPOs, but 60 hadn't succeeded. So it's a really interesting analysis as he was able to draw from data from those companies too. So anyway, he he looked at 100 companies and some of the things that he looked at to try and determine what made them a success or a failure was he looked at things like the idea, the leader behind the company, the business model, the team, the team's ability to weather the storms, the funding that was put into it, the timing. Well, the number one at 42% difference between success and failure, and this really was a surprise for me, I've got to say, it was timing, followed by team execution, and third, the idea itself. I mean, I was surprised. I would have thought the idea would have been number one. And I think he did too, you know, probably why he originally named his company Idea Lab. But then... The more I thought about this, the more it made sense. Because let's look at how this shows up in nature. You take a seed for the best possible chance of its survival. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. Planting it during a harsh frost when the ground is frozen, it's not going to help its growth. It might not even get started. Or planting it during the peak of summer in a drought, bad timing again there. Even following a harsh winter, sure, the seed may germinate by the time it gets round to springtime. The plant may start to grow. It may take off. But will it have its very best chance of survival? 
So when will that particular seed have the greatest chance of growth? You know, if you look at certain plants that need to go in, autumn can often be the best possible chance of survival for that particular plant. That's the way that it will flourish to its maximum capability. So I'm trying to think of an example of this. So, you know, we have a spring bulbs like narcissus and tulips. They actually need 12 to 16 weeks of chill factor over winter for their success. If you chill them too long, though, it stunts the bud growth. So it's very much like the story of Goldilocks, isn't it? You know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Just right on timing. Just right on timing. So remember at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned growing tomatoes. Well, for tomato plants to flourish, the kind of rule of thumb is plant 12 weeks after frosts to produce the best tomatoes. And you know what, if you can't do that, then you just need to keep them indoors for a bit. So businesses are the same. Sometimes an economic winter can be the exact time for a startup business to be born and flourish. So we've got things like Airbnb, which was started in the height of a recession when people needed the extra cash from renting out their rooms. Would it have been as successful if it had been born in the height of an economic summer, so to speak, when cash was flowing freely, when people were spending on luxury accommodation as opposed to tightening the belts? So there's numerous examples of companies that came up with really cool business ideas, say around streaming video, but their timing was off. Could have been perhaps because broadband at that time was not readily available across a higher enough a number of people. Or internet speeds were too slow. Or software to enhance the experience, like Adobe Flash, had not been ven- invented at that stage. So timing is everything. Like our tomatoes. If you have a really amazing startup idea, but it's too early then sit on the idea, keep it indoors until the climate changes. Besides the reminder that timing is the number one factor that defines success or failure, Bill Gross really inspired me when he talked about what he's working on now at the moment. Climate change. Climate change and how we can save this planet. You know, you think back to things like the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires, which burned an estimated 18.6 million hectares. That's 72,000 square miles. Nearly 3 billion terrestrial vertebrates, you know, reptiles, were affected and many driven to extinction. Over 3 billion. Death to humans, death to animals, and who can forget those Awful pictures of koalas with burnt paws pleading to be rescued. These catastrophic fires, a result of intense heat. Now, some people will still debate that climate change doesn't really exist. But the science shows that we pump out per person 31 pounds of CO2 per person into the atmosphere. We add into the atmosphere the heat of three Hiroshima bombs every second. We are literally changing the weather events. We're using 
the atmosphere like a dumping ground for CO2. And all this heat, all this heat that we are sending up there, up into the atmosphere, what it's doing is it's allowing more and more of the sun's own heat to penetrate through down to earth. The reality is we live in a world that makes concrete, glass, steel. And there are still nations developing that need to build and develop. So it's going to happen. Well, it isn't going to happen that we stop making them. To make concrete and glass and steel, you need basically like a large amount of energy. And these industrial processes, they create a fifth of all emissions. Now, there's three ways that you actually store energy. So once you've created it, three ways that you store it. You store it chemically, so that's in things like batteries, or thermally. And this is using principles of like hot and cold storage in tanks, caverns, salt plants. And then the third one's mechanically, so gravity, compressed air, flywheels. So what Bill's exploring is taking the lessons he already knows, getting very curious, and applying these lessons to building to scale cheap energy. Energy that can produce, will be produced for as little as, say, three cents. And I think currently in the US, the cheapest energy Production is hydro at around 17 cents. So this is a this is like a really big goal, <laughs> big vision. So what he's looking at is he's looking at timing, yeah, iteration. So that's basically the rep- repetition of a process to generate an outcome, building on each learning as you go. And Moore's law. Moore's law states that we can expect the speed and capability of our computers to increase every couple of years, yet the price go down. So Bill actually used in this talk an example of one small part, a 128-bit piece that was used in Apollo 11 spacecraft. That's the craft that landed on the moon back in the 60s. The cost of which would have been over $1,000. So 128-bit. Now, just to give you the example of where we are now compared to that, you can buy 128 gigabytes for $9.95 on Amazon. And I think that works out at something like 8 billion bytes in a gigabyte. So what we're basically looking at is we're looking at computers, we're looking at computation and the exponential curve The price we pay for memory storage goes down and then the power, the storage capacity goes up. So how can we use this to create cheap power where the price for storage of power is not really going down and certainly not going down at this kind of exponential rate that it does in computing? We humans demand power. And then on the other hand, we also want to save our atmosphere and we want to save our planet. We want hope. Did you know that we actually reached a tipping point in 2017? The cost of creating solar energy became cheaper than fossil fuels. So why aren't we all using solar power? 
It's because the storage of solar, e.g. like the batteries, is still not at that cheap enough level. So this is about the storage problem. So the production is there, but the storage is the problem. So we need to find a way to store energy cheaply. So this is where Bill started uh, to look and looking at all the different ways that you can store energy. And he was looking at things like building silos, but that worked out too expensive and creating a crane that lowers weights. And there was possibilities there. And he had this kind of eureka moment, which came around using computing to operate the stacking and unstacking of these weights. So building this giant tower was like an automated crane and the tower builds up during the day. And then he basically went on and created this company called Energy Vault. And it is now creating storage seven times cheaper than batteries and five times cheaper than pumped hydro. Extraordinary. The next thing he was looking at is solar, so harnessing the power of the sun. So remember I mentioned like concrete, steel, glass. They all are built using heat. And at the moment, they burn fossil fuels, creating carbon. So to get this heat, they require incredibly high temperatures, over a 1,000 degrees Celsius. And current solar towers produce only, I think, maximum probably around 600 degrees Celsius. So it's just not enough to make steel and glass. So Bill started up this company called Heliogen, H-E-L-I-O-G-E-N. And they're replacing fossil fuels with sunlight. And the exciting thing is that they're using computing to coordinate the solar panels to capture this a maximum amount of sun, sunlight. So it's minute adjustments made, you know, every, every second. And it's such an exciting project because these panels can be set up in the desert. They don't require surveyors to install. So you can set them up over vast amounts of, of area cheaply as the computers themselves do the adjustment to reflecting the sun, the sun to like a single target with enormous accuracy. And one of the slides that he showed showed 4% of land in Saudi set up with these panels, 4% of the land in Saudi set up with these panels would make more than all the oil produced. And nothing is burnt in the making of this energy. No fossil fuels, no trees, no natural resources. Carbon-free generation. So the final thing that just left me with such awe and wonderment listening to this genius was how he's looking at carbon capture. And remember, we need to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere. We need to give our children, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren back a life that we had when we were youngsters before there was this dumping ground. So Heliogen have calculated that the heat captured from Heliogen means one acre would do what 100 acres of forest does. 390 miles square in the desert could take out all of the CO2 in the atmosphere. And all of this is scalable, profitable and timely. And best of all, it uses that exponential curve, the power of computing, 
it's clean. It's like there's no more burning of our precious fossil fuels, no more emissions. I know, it just makes my heart glow to hear about this company. And so often, you know, the thought of climate change, it leads me feeling useless. I feel like there's so much doom and gloom around the subject. And knowing that there's people out there like Bill Gross, his colleagues working on these amazing solutions, well, no, it just makes me feel there is hope, hope in this world. Pull out the CO2 from the atmosphere to heal the planet, to bring about change and restore things. Wow. Hope and wonderment. Man's ability to destroy and man's ability to heal. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure. I'm so happy to like bring you some of these things that I've been reading about watching, seeing, and um, yeah, I hope that fills you with some hope as well. All the best. Look forward to connecting with you again on the Flowerhood Podcast. Signing off. My heartfelt thanks for listening all the way to the end of this Flowerhood Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the show, like and review it on your favourite player. Be part of the greater Flowerhood community. Join the Flowerhood Facebook group and find show notes and information at flowerhood.com. I can't wait to share the next episode. Until then, hey, why not stop and smell the roses?